From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Every softball team hopes to end their season in Oklahoma City, but once you get there, you get greedy and want to be the last one standing. The Gators came very close to reaching that highest of goals, but it was Oklahoma that took the Women's College World Series crown after an epic championship series. Today, we'll recap the action in OKC with FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Harry. Hear from baseball head coach Kevin O'Sullivan on the eve of Super Regionals and cover the rest of what's going on around Gator Nation with FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter. But first, Tim Walton's team was rolling in Oklahoma City until running into a buzzsaw in the form of defending national champion Oklahoma, which proved to possess the first bats that the dominant Gator pitching staff couldn't silence. Chris Harry was with the Gators every step of the way during their impressive run, and we caught up with him on his way back from OKC to break it down. I thought the atmosphere was the best it's ever been in the time I've been there. Now, obviously, that probably had a lot to do with Oklahoma being there. Sure. Um, campus 30 miles away. But what was really cool for me was just seeing on my Twitter timeline as that game was unfolding, 12th inning, 13th, 14th, the people that were chiming in, you know, ex-Gator football players, will you get watching at 6 in the morning in France? Hmm. When you see the TV ratings, which I think you'll get into later on, uh, I mean, just uh, ridiculous numbers, 1.68 million people watching that softball game that lasted five hours and 24 minutes. Mm. I mean, I, by the time I went back for game two, it felt like I just pulled out of the parking lot from the, <laughs> from the first game. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that, that went into what happened. Uh, you have to give Florida credit, Adam, for I mean, they're down their last strike twice. Mm-hmm. Um, bottom of seven, I don't think anyone thought they had any chance. And it, a bloop double, Alicia Casio scores all the way from first base. Uh, Amanda Lorenz in the 12th inning, double into the gap, scores two runs when they're down 4-2. So, I mean, just plays like that really caught the imagination of, of Gator Nation. And these Gator fans really embrace this softball team. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, did you know, and I'll give you a trivia question, Florida softball is the number two highest Twitter followers of any of the sports at Florida behind football and a, a little bit ahead of men's basketball, believe it or not. So uh, people really embrace the softball team. They feel like they have a connection to it. And I think the way ESPN does a fabulous job with the event, obviously, and it feels like when you're watching a game, it just feels like I think uh, that you're closer to the game than just mm-hmm. about any other sport. And it's these girls, they're emotional, they're always smiling, and it really is a good event. And Florida obviously um, did itself proud, would much rather have been on the upside. But, you know, let's call it like it is. Oklahoma was the better team. There was a better pitching team head-to-head. There was a better hitting team head-to-head. And let's not forget, Adam, they were the defending national champions. So uh, everyone has to tip their caps to, uh, to Patty Gasso and what she's got going on in uh, Norman, Oklahoma. You mentioned a second ago, Florida obviously had expectations of going and winning the whole thing, especially after the way they played through the first three games of the tournament. So from your perspective and, and the players and coaches you were able to talk to, how much did Monday night's game sort of derail that plan in terms of burning up the pitching staff and the position that it put Florida in for game two? Oh, no, let's, let's rewind a little bit and go back to the Super Regional. 
and we talked about this last week, they had 11 hits in the Super Regional. Amanda Lawrence had five, okay? And every game, I think they lost the first game 3 nothing, and then 2 nothing the next game, and then 2-1 in the, in the decisive game to advance to the College World Series. And to Florida's credit and to Tim Walton's credit, they said after that game, I remember Amanda Lorenz sitting up there. If we don't hit with runners in scoring position, you know, we're, we're not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. And Tim Wallen said, it's going to be up to these players to do something, basically, with the bats in their hands. So first game against A&M, nine hits. They went eight nothing. Uh, second game, LSU, eight hits, three doubles, hit a couple homers. So five extra base hits in that game. Then in the semifinals against Washington, they get the two-run homer from Kavistad, and they win that game five to two. It probably should have been a shutout except for an error in the seventh inning, and then Gorley gave up the unearned run home run. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're talking about 20 to two outscored, 22 to eight, they out hit the teams. Okay, so they're feeling pretty good about themselves going into that championship series against Oklahoma. But again, Oklahoma had the, the goods to match up against them with the two pages, talking Parker and Lowry, mm-hmm. and some very, very talented uh, players at bat. And Florida went in there. They hadn't given up an earned run. And then, you know, they saw some bats against the Sooners that, <laughs> wow, Shea Knighton, yeah. you know, three at bats uh, over the span of the two games, six RBIs. Mm. She got the clutch hits. They got the, Florida had a couple really clutch hits and some nice hits. Oklahoma got power, multiple Mm -hmm. RBI hits at critical parts of the game that you just felt at the time were backbreaking relative to Florida. And uh, credit to them for capitalizing on that. I mean, Kelly Barnhill, good grief. What was her ERA going into the game one of the championship series? Adam Abu is a 0-3-4. Yeah. You know. And, and she gave up five runs in the innings she pitched that, you know, no one had been able to hit her. She'd given up, what, three runs at the most at one time this season. So you, you really got to tip your cap again to what the Sooners were able to do, how they were able to square up on Florida's pitching in pivotal moments. And, you know, they deserve what they got in Oklahoma City. And you wrote about in your game story on Tuesday night that in the past it was Tim Walton that made some big pitching decisions that surprised a lot of people, but it led directly to Florida winning national titles in 2014 and 2015. And in this case, it was a pitching decision the other direction that really seemed to work out and help Oklahoma win it. Yeah. And let's call it what we see. You get fans are always locked in on their team. What's wrong with this person? Why did they do this? Why mm-hmm. they, well, just every now and then you got to throw some perspective in there and look at what's going on on the other side. I mean, all right, what do you do? Do you start Kelly Barnhill? I just said she gave up five runs the night before. Do you start Delaney? 225 pitches the previous two days. Mm-hmm. Um, start Alicia? I mean, I'm sure there was some hesitancy there. She hadn't started a game in a month. That was a bad outing at Tennessee where she gave up five runs. Was it a gamble? Of course it was. But, you know, how did Paige Parker work out for OU. That's who the Sooners started. That's who Gasso ran out. She got drilled. She'd gone six and two-thirds uh, of the game before. She got lit up for three runs and one and two-thirds, and she got yanked. But OU was better positioned, I think, Adam, with a couple freshmen who had played some high-pressure innings during the season. They were a little better positioned to kind of weather that storm. And obviously, when once they got out to that 5-3 lead, they had a little bit of cushion to play with. And like Tim Walton said, he knew their whole deal was they wanted a lead so they could get to Paige Lowry with that 70-mile-an-hour-plus stuff that she's got. Mm-hmm. And if the situations were reversed, that's what Tim Walton wanted to do, Adam. He wanted to be in a position where he could put Kelly Barnhill, his ace, in on the back end of that rotation. So, um, you know, I, I understand it. It worked. No, it didn't. 
but sometimes, you know, that that's what happens. And that's the way the cards are dealt. I mean, it was a 17 inning game before. That's not normal. No. Okay. Far <laughs> from it. <laughs> it's far, far from it. So you're dealing with some different stuff. And then you add on the fact to that, that Delaney Gorley, who was really made for that college world series man she just handles that stuff so brilliantly throw on the back of that that she had gone seven innings the day before that game uh and 104 pitches granted uh magnificently and granted it's it's not like baseball i understand that and i'm not saying it is but there is some point where batters time the other pitching Mm -hmm. and coaching gets involved between games here's what's coming at you Here's the film. We're showing you this stuff, the tape, whatever, and you're more ready for it. And like Tim Walton said, it just wasn't our championship series. With that, you know, you give it to Oklahoma. And I, I can sit there and I, I got bombarded on Twitter last night, and we can have this debate going back and forth. And like I said to one guy on Twitter, Pat Dye once told me that hindsight is 50 50, right? <laughs> so, so why can't we just say that it was a great two game series and that OU, the defending national champions, was a better team, better hitting team? better pitching team and more ready for that stage given they won it last year. And this is something that can't be under exaggerated. They were the home team far and away. Sure. I mean, the last time so we were there, OU was in it, but uh, Florida didn't face them. So I didn't really get a sense of how big of an advantage that was, but being in the stadium and being and seeing those OU fans, it was a significant advantage. And that question was put to Tim Walton after the game and he didn't use that as any, he gives, you know, that's, that's fine. That's expected. That's where the series was or whatever. He didn't use it at all of an excuse. What he did is he praised their fans for being respectful uh, to Florida while cheering on their team, which is the way it ought to be in a, in a, in a great environment like that. And adding to that storyline, Tim Walton won a national championship playing baseball at Oklahoma. So certainly uh, rife with storylines, no matter how you look at that championship series. But moving past that, let's talk about the future, because I think a lot of people looked at Florida and their youth and thought maybe this team was a year away anyway from being in a position to win a national championship. So now that they have this experience under their belts and they have most of their key pieces returning next year, it seems like they're a solid bet to be right back in the same spot. Yeah, I would think they'd be the favorite going into the SEC next season. I would think they'd be a a top three team in the country. I mean, uh, Kelly Barnhill will be better next year. It's a natural progression. I'm talking, if you count Kelly Barnhill, I think that'll be seven starters coming back for this team. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you have Amanda Lorenz, you had Kaylee Kavista. She she did not have a great series by any stretch of the imagination, but I imagine that's going to be some fuel for her coming back. But, I mean, you're talking about, uh, like I said, Amanda Lorenz, Kaylee Kavista, Nicole DeWitt. Sophia Renoso, who I think had a phenomenal series, yes. both offensively and defensively, given what probably the expectations were, especially at the plate. Um, but really, Florida only says goodbye to Delaney Gorley and Justine McLean. You follow the team, Adam. You know that Tim Walton signed another class that was ranked, anywhere, depending on who you read, one of the best in the country, if not the best in the country. I'll give you a couple names. Hannah Adams from Georgia a pitcher by the name of Natalie Lugo from California. They're both on the uh, USA under-19 team. Uh, A first baseman and a catcher named Danielle Romanello from St. Petersburg and another Californian. This one's, I believe, a uh, pitcher, Jordan Matthews. Whether or not she'll be able to play next year, I think she's coming off an injury, will be uh, uh, something that we'll look at in the fall or whatever. But um, those are the names that Tim Walton threw at me. And uh, I, I don't think you have any doubt about that this team will certainly be in a be in a super regional and be playing be in the same position it was this year. But what Tim told me this today was it was in January that 
he wondered how tough it was, how it would respond when really the going got tough. He knew it was a postseason team, probably a super regional team. He wanted to know if it was a national championship contending team. Mm-hmm. He got that answer in spades, and he told the story about he just saw how Delaney Gorley has a foot issue. They have these brutal fall workouts where they run at six in the morning and he talks about all the time the players talk about all the time delaney couldn't participate in those because of this foot issue but she would be out there at six in the morning at every workout on the sidelines doing planks wow and then when these workouts were over she went to the weight room in the south end zone and did her own workout that she could do to be ready for this team and he said that kind of toughness is the kind of thing that wore over this team and kind of maybe matriculated through this team. And you kind of hope that Amanda Lorenz and Nicole DeWitt, Sophia Reynoso, uh, uh, Janelle Wheaton, let's not forget her. She had a good series also. She'll be phenomenal as a catcher coming back next year. Those are the kind of players that will inject it to the underclassmen. And, you know, looking to 2018, you just kind of think that, you know, this, the same kind of fate awaits this team next year. Uh, granted, they got to put it together, but uh, the expectations will be very, very high. Final thing before we let you go, you were in Oklahoma City for almost a week, and that is now not only— More than a week, Adam, eight days. Eight days, I'm sorry, eight days in Oklahoma City, which is not only the mecca of softball, but the domain of Billy Donovan. And I I know because of Twitter, because I follow you at Gators Chris, you actually had a chance to uh, to have dinner with Billy Donovan. Tell us about that. Calling it like it is, it's probably more the domain of Russell Westbrook. That's true. (laughs) As everyone knows, in the NBA, it's about players and not about coaches. Correct. uh, when it comes to Billy Donovan, I mean, he obviously has a special place in Mara. We became very, very good friends in my time on covering his team. And, yeah, I got to see him. We went out to dinner at a place that, that he likes. And uh, he is as happy as a clam. You know, anyone who wants to talk about, you know, I'm watching like you are, this Kevin Durant, you know, just dominating the uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's part of being a, a professional coach. And he's moved past that. This is something that he wanted to do. He's loving it. The stuff you see about Ohio State and Bad Mata and stuff, just, you know, he's going to be coaching the Oklahoma City Thunder for the next several seasons. Just be assured of that. But uh, uh, he's very happy. In fact, he, he was told me he was leaving Tuesday to go to California to meet with Westbrook, then going, spending a day with uh, Anthony Roberson. I guess they're going to talk about free throws, but I don't know. Um, then he, then he was, he was going to go to Seattle to uh, meet with Pete Carroll and pick his brain about how he handles some things. Then he was flying to Miami where uh, Victor Oladipo is training. He was going to hang out with him for a day. Then he was going down to Marathon, Florida for his son's uh, uh, bachelor party. His son is getting married in July. His huh. son is having a bachelor party down in Marathon, a big fishing trip with some friends. And then from there, he's going to fly to Tampa. This would be good for a U2 concert. So he's uh, mm. he's got a lot going on in his life. And the fact that uh, I was able to catch up with him and have a nice dinner with him and, you know, have a sit down for a couple hours. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, by far the favorite coach I ever had to deal with and uh, one of the best guys I've ever known in, in the business of uh, sports and coaching. Well, we're glad you got to mix a little bit of business with pleasure, and uh, thank you for all the work you did out in Oklahoma City. Again, if people missed any of your stories, they're all available at floridagators.com, and uh, thank you again for, for bringing it to us. Thanks, Adam. While the book is now closed on Gator softball for the year, the baseball team will continue pursuing their own College World Series destiny this weekend when they host Wake Forest in Super Regionals.
Jeff Cardozo had a chance to sit down with Kevin O'Sullivan prior to their battle with the Demon Deacons to talk about their challenges last weekend and the task ahead. We've been very fortunate to where we've had some very good teams and some very good players. And where we are um, in the state of Florida and the type of schedule that we play, obviously our out-of-conference and our conference that we're in, obviously in the SEC, we always play one of the top five toughest schedules in the country. And, you know, to get through that grind and put yourself in position to, to be, you know, one of the top 16 teams playing again for a chance to go to Omaha, is, it is special. And I'm awfully proud of this year's team. Uh, we lost a lot of good players from last year's team. I mean, we lost close to, I think, $11 million with the signing bonuses and some guys that are going to pitch and play for an awfully long time. And we've had to fill a lot of different shoes. It's been an interesting year. It's um, It has not always been easy. It hasn't always been pretty. But we've somehow found a way to score one more run than the other team on most nights. So we're sitting here at 45 and 17 and... And it's been it's been hard at times. It has, but um, the the grind and the grit that our team has shown this year has been has been remarkable. And we've had a lot of good stories within our team. Obviously, everybody wants to talk about our three starters on the weekend, and rightfully so. And I get it. But the Michael Burns story and the, the Ryan Larson story, you know, and the Nelson Maldonado story and the Mark Colasavari story, and all the injuries that we've had to have, and Christian Hicks. There's a bunch of guys that have kind of waited their turn and helped this team get to this point, to be honest with you. So it, it's been special in a lot of different ways. You look back and the way the the SEC season started, you know, the, the worst that it can get, and you lose those three at Auburn, and you, you have to drop fly ball on the infield that potentially cost you the, the series there. But I, I just remember, I remember the conversation you had with the team on the bus, and, and I think you still had belief in this team. And, and then to do what you did and still be able to come back and, and win the league, and you know, I think that was a great word, different, because that's a different way to do it. You guys have always had a lot of success early on um, but that wasn't the case this year no it wasn't and you know I, one, one of my real good friends in this league is Rob Childress at A&M and they I think they started out one and five in the league and we had both kind of got on the phone together and and tried to help pick each other up so to speak and now now look where we're at we're both back here in the super regionals and you know so it's a long season it, it's different than football you know, where you play once a week and, you know, 10, 12 game schedule. And it's, it's just a different sport. You're not always going to be playing your best, you know, when you play 60, 65 games, including the SEC tournament. I mean, so there are a lot of ups and downs. The idea, though, is hopefully your downs don't last very long and that you're playing your best at the end of the year. And hopefully we can continue to, to play some really good baseball here. It's not going to be easy against Wake Forest this weekend. Obviously, we know that they can hit but we can pitch. Mm-hmm. So it'll be an interesting classic matchup between both teams, and you know we'll see what happens. But um, like I said, I'm, I think this is also the first time that we're healthy for the first time. I think Ryan's going to be coming back this weekend. Uh, Garrett threw a pen yesterday and said he felt fine. So we'll monitor that day-to-day. Um, and Dalton looks like he ran well this weekend. Uh, it looks like his ankle is back to 100%. And, and uh, you know, Mikey caught back-to-back days. and So I think, I'm hoping anyways, that this might be the first time in an awfully long time that we've got everybody available and everybody's healthy. 
You mentioned uh, all the close games, and there were 17 one-run games this year, which by far and above or 17 one-run victories, so, so really special. And I think that's probably helped the mindset too because even down the stretch, some of the close games, it didn't look like this group panicked at all. And do you think because of the ability to, to stay within close games, pull out a lot of those, that, that's really helped? Absolutely. I, I, there's nothing you can really do in a practice setting to simulate, hey, there's a runner at second, it's the ninth inning, and there's two outs, and you've got to make a couple pitches to get through this thing. You, you just can't simulate that. You know, you're down by you know, two runs in the seventh, and you got to somehow scramble against somebody else's bullpen. Mm-hmm. You know, and to be able to do that a couple times, then you start believing, and then all of a sudden you got Michael Byrne getting all the trust from his teammates, knowing that if we could get one more run here, the game's got a good chance of being over. I think there's a lot of things that fell into place for us this year. Probably from a fan perspective, sometimes it's probably <laughs> hard to watch, but. You know, baseball is baseball, and every team's different. And you got to figure out with your personnel how can you put your team in the best position to win. I remember our very first year here, we stole over 100 bases. We had some guys who could run, and we did not have the starting pitching that um, you know that we do now. But all those pitchers bought in; they all sank the ball, and we had to learn how. Okay, if we got a bunch of guys throwing 85 to 90, how are we going to win with this team? So we were a bit more aggressive on the base paths because we had the personnel to run. And we had a bunch of guys that bought in and sunk the ball. And they all had quick tempos and got the ball on the mound and didn't waste any time. And, and every year, it's, you're going to have a different team. And this year's team, we knew that we were going to have to rely on our starters. And we needed to figure out our bullpen. We knew that. And the offense did certainly come around. It was a little bit later than expected, but you know they did come around. And, and I'm not sure you guys are here without Michael Burns. Let's talk about him a little bit. And you know, a guy that has started midweek games, had a lot of success. And... You know, then you knew that you needed a guy to throw strikes at the end of the game, to get outs at the end of the game. So as part of that decision-making process and, and you guys figuring that out, it was a mighty fine move on your part, wasn't it? Well, we got to a point where it really was a couple of things, Jeff. We, we were struggling offensively, and we were playing in so many close games that uh, the freshman, Tyler Dyson, was the one that I thought that could mm-hmm. do it. But it, it just wasn't ready. Yeah. It's not ready. And it... I put him in a couple of situations where he was successful and then he wasn't successful, and it wasn't fair. I needed to step back, bring him along a little bit more slowly. Um, his stuff is perfectly fine, but he's only been pitching two years. So next year you're going to see, see a totally different kid yeah. in Tyler Dyson. So when we got to it, and I think it was right around the second or third SEC weekend, I think it was Tennessee, where Michael, I think, lost the first two games late. Yep. And I went home and I, I thought about it and I'm like, you know, he's not, he didn't throw the ball poorly. We just got beat. And I ran him out there the third game and he got the, he got the save, I believe. And I think that weekend I was hoping would show him that I had confidence in him. And I, I saw how he handled the first two games he lost. He had the right demeanor. He's got a short memory. And it just kind of took off from there. It's really that simple. Is it neat to watch just knowing the, the importance of then throwing strike one and, and how important that is to pitch in and he spins in a breaking ball and you know then maybe the hitter is expecting it and then instead of wasting one away, it'll just paint four spot fastball. It's just he's pitching and I think that's the, the true definition of it. Well, he's got three pitches. Yeah. He's, he's like a starter that's trying to get three outs at the end of the game. He can go right on right change up. He uses his change up to lefties. He could do a lot of different things. He's like Fiedo with a slider. He could do a lot of different things. He could backdoor it to lefties. He could back foot it to lefties. He could front door it to right-handers. I mean, there's a lot of different things he could do in a strike zone with his breaking ball. And the fastball's better, let's be honest. I mean, last year he was 86-88. 
as a starter, he was more 86 to 90. Now it's 88 to 92 and touching 93 in a short stint. So the fastball's playing up. The command has been outstanding, and he's got three pitches that he can throw for strikes at any time, and, and he's competitive. He's a happy-go-lucky kid, but he is competitive, and we call him a sneaky athlete. You know, <laughs> you know and uh, everybody got a good kick the other night when he, when he got the bunt down. But uh, he's just, he feels his position well. He's fairly quick to the plate. He does everything well, you know, and um, he's had a remarkable year. The uh, the other night going into that, that final game to win the regional, I'm sure it was a long night for you guys and, and trying to figure out what was happening. But I think the, the neat part of a long season, too, is you hadn't seen Langworthy throw in more than 30 games, and he hadn't hit a home run in forever, it, it seemed like. So he, as a freshman, comes through, and you start a guy on the mound that's making his first career start, and, and he gives you the types of innings that you needed. So it had to be really neat to watch. It was. We spent on – literally, we were in there until 2 o'clock in the morning. We had it all mapped out. It was going to be Kirby for two. It was going to be um, Langworthy for two. But once we moved Langworthy in from the outfield, we were going to lose their DH. So yeah. Blake Reese was then going to go to the outfield. If it was an RBI situation, that's why Singer was sitting in the seven hole. If it was an RBI situation, Garrett was going to hit. Um, but we had two outs, nobody on, so we knew we were going to make the move with Langworthy. So Blake Reese went ahead and hit in that spot, and, and then Dyson was going to come in for, for an inning and get us to the fifth. Horvath was going to give us two and get us to the seventh and just kind of see where the game was at. Um, so everything was kind of mapped out, but as the game went on, we got an extra inning out of Kirby, and we got two more innings out of Austin. So that helped us extend the game. And the thing to, rem- to remember here is even though Austin had not pitched in the game for quite some time and it was Kirby's first start, um, there's a couple things that went into that. Number one, they do throw every week in the inter-squads on our off day, so it's not like they're not seeing hitters. The second thing is, is Kirby's numbers against right-handers are really good. And we kind of stacked it in a way that hopefully we're going to give them different looks. So Kirby's got 89-91 with a good slider, and then you go to the soft lefty, then you go to the hard righty in Dyson, and then you go to the, the older lefty behind him. So we were trying to stack it in a way just to continue to give them different looks because they showed the ability to turn around velocity the night before, mm-hmm. and Brady hasn't been hit like that before. So it wasn't like they couldn't stand in there and, and, and hit a good fastball. So there was a lot of things that went in, in, into that thought. And it was a long night, but those guys stepped up. It was it was kind of cool. Yeah, it certainly was. Um, I don't want to run through all the hitters, but uh, you know JJ, the, the one that's known by everybody in, in the year that he's had. And I just I remember as much as we've talked throughout the year, you always said JJ's going to hit. And then he finally got to that time where he did hit, and, and that three weeks run that he had was phenomenal. And you know obviously the big home run uh, here in the postseason as well. So having that come back and, and all the struggles that he went through that had to be pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's a long season. I, I'm amazed that at times when people are so critical of kind of maybe the year he's had. I think he's got 10 homers and 50 ribbies. Yeah. I mean, if, if someone had said, hey, listen, your three-hole hitter is going to have 50 ribbies and drive in 10, I would take that every year. I just think the expectation level that he set for himself from, from his freshman year is, is somewhat unrealistic. It's, it's as if it's the same thing with our program. You're at 45 and 17, and sometimes there's a feel of, well, they just haven't done quite enough. You know, we're the number three national seed. You know, it's like, but you kind of build your own monster. But in J.J.'s case, uh, he, he's, had a, he's had a good year, and he gets pitched differently. Sure. Regardless of where I hit him in the lineup, the other team in the other dugout, they don't, they pitch him differently. You know, I, I can hit him third, and they pitch him tough. I, I can hit him fourth, they pitch him tough. I can hit him fifth, they pitch him tough. doesn't matter. He's the guy that they circle in our lineup. Don't let J.J. Schwartz beat you. And sometimes that's hard. That's hard. So I think he's had a great year. And I think he's become much improved behind the plate. I think he's turned himself into a heck of a first baseman. 
I think he's moving around better now. Actually, I think he's a, I think he's a much improved athlete. Mm-hmm. Last couple of days, I just seen him messing around in the outfield, shagging balls in center field during BP, and he looks looks like he's moving moving real, real well. I think he's running better now than he's ever run. So he's had a great year for us, and we certainly wouldn't be where we're at without him. Well, and uh, obviously Wake Forest has had a year because they're uh, in, in Super Regionals, first time since 1999. So it's a group that hasn't really been a part of this. You guys have certainly have, but uh, it could be a scary thing or it could be a good thing. But it's, uh, it's a team that hits when you look at their numbers. So uh, certainly a formidable opponent strolling in here. No question. Well, start with their pitching. they got two seniors um, that'll throw the first two games. And they got a junior that's got a really good arm as their third starter. They have a closer that's 94 to 96. They're very similar to us. They, they rely on their pitching and their starting pitching. Offensively, they're very good. The bottom line is going to come down to us executing pitches. That's the bottom line. If we execute, we'll be, we'll be successful. If we don't, they got a chance to put up a crooked number on the board. So it should be very interesting. It'll be an interesting weekend, and, you know, interesting matchup for sure. And when you look at what they're trying to do offensively, the homers are, are a big part of things, more than 100 home runs. So... You know, you, just, you guys got to miss bats, and you got to be able to hit spots, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think their ballpark is an offensive ballpark. Uh, I looked at their numbers from league play um, to overall, and, you know, their ballpark is offensive. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, remember, I think the first game in the regional, I think West Virginia hit six home runs in one game. So uh, I don't know if the wind's blowing out, or I haven't really looked at the dimensions of the field, not to take anything away from their numbers, because I have watched video they can hit. Sure. But I think it is an offensive ballpark. Well, so uh, in order for you guys to be successful and, and go to Omaha yet again, it'll be the sixth time in, in eight years. Is it more about just taking care of Florida, just doing what, uh, what you're supposed to be doing, play good defense? That's always been my philosophy. Uh, you know, of course, we, you watch tons of video of the other team and you have an approach and you have a game plan going in. But the bottom line is if Alex Fayetto pitches like he did last weekend, he gives us a heck of a good chance to win. And if Brady Singer pitches like he's been pitching all year long, he gives us a great chance to win. And we're going to have to hit. That's mm-hmm. the bottom line. And we're, we're, we're going to have to hit, and we're going to have to score some runs for those guys. But is there a game plan for each hitter and how we're going to pitch them? Of course. But it boils down to what we do. And if we do what we do well and execute pitches, it gives us the best chance to win. It's just that simple. Oh, a lot of people uh, excited about this one. Uh, I know you're, uh, you'd love to see the fans out here because it makes a big difference. It certainly does, and looks like we're going to have good weather, hopefully knock on wood this weekend. And um, Both games Saturday Sunday are at 3 o'clock, so um, looking forward to having great support out here with our fan base, and it'd be awfully, awfully nice to get back to Omaha, so we'll see what happens. No doubt. Sully, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. As we just heard from Sully, it certainly wasn't an easy path for the Gators to reach Supers, getting pushed to the brink by USF and Bethune-Cookman. We covered that along with news on track and field, football, and more with Scott Carter, and we began by discussing how baseball held true to an important postseason mantra. Yeah, what's the old documentary, Survive and Advance, I think, uh about the North Carolina State team under Jim Valvano that mm. kept finding ways to win and eventually won a national title. And, you know, you hear coaches talk about that in college basketball tournament a lot. But it had the same feel for the Gators baseball team. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan, after they did finally clinch the series uh, by defeating Bethune-Cookman, you could tell there was some relief there because not a lot has come easy for this team. And they faced a difficult situation there because – no one expected them to obviously lose to Bethune-Cookman on Sunday. It kind of threw their pitching plans up in the air for both teams on Monday. And for the Gators, that meant, you know, piecing it together with, they started Kirby McMullen, a freshman, 
But what really saved him uh, in that game, in the championship game, was, you know, a great performance from another freshman, Austin Langworthy. Not only did he pitch four solid innings and really bridge the gap between McMullen and then Michael Byrne at the end, but he hits a three-run homer that uh, broke a scoreless tie in the sixth inning. And, and really up until that point, Adam, that game, you, every inning that went by that it was still 0-0 zero, zero there, you could tell the tension was turned up a notch. Sure. Because, uh, you know, Bethune-Cookman had entered the tournament this year, 2-30 and 30 all-time in the NCAA tournament. Give those guys a lot of credit. I mean, they, they had a good-looking team. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, Sullivan talked about that. The Gators talked about how impressed they were. I mean, they, they won three games alone this weekend here in Gainesville in the regional. They knocked out Marist. They knocked out USF. And they took Florida to a second game. And uh, like I said, Austin Lingworthy's homer really changed the complexion of that game. And then uh, Michael Byrne finished it off, and uh, the Gators move on. And now they got Wake Forest coming to town for a big Super Regional this weekend. And uh, But again, getting back to your main question, it was a, a tough weekend for Florida. One, they, they really had to grind out. They just weren't hitting the ball well at all. Uh, but it came down to, you know, a couple of timely hits. The uh, biggest one was by uh, Langworthy, obviously, and then Michael Byrne hard to say enough about that guy right now and speaking of burn he was just named a finalist for the national stopper of the year award so basically the best closer of the game but kevin o'sullivan's asking a lot more of him scott and we've seen him work extended saves i mean he's coming in in some cases in the seventh inning and being asked to close the door so not necessarily what a traditional closer would do he's almost having to be the setup man and the closer for himself yeah, you know, Adam, a uh, guy my age remembers when closers in the major leagues were more doing this stuff, when they might go in and pitch two or three innings. Uh, nowadays, you know, a closer, if they get an inning out of him, that, that's usually what they expect. Mm-hmm. But certainly in this, the regional, the Gators would not have survived, I don't think, without the contributions of Michael Byrne. None more so than the 12-inning game Saturday night against USF. You know, Alex Fado started, pitched seven good innings, and it's a one-to-one game, and they're still looking for, you know, that big hit maybe to win it. Well, you know, they bring in Michael Byrne to kind of keep it close. and He ends up going five innings, throws 82 pitches, and gets the win. And you look back at the weekend, he got the save against Marist on Friday night. He uh, got the win on Saturday against USF, didn't pitch at Sunday's game, actually took a day off and then came back Monday and got to save with another two and two-third inning out to close out Bethune-Cookman in the championship game. Overall, he goes 10 scoreless innings, faces 37 batters, gives wow. up just six hits, strikes out 13, walks two. Just a very uh, dominant performance by Michael Byrne. I mean, his story uh, is really maybe one of the best on this team, Adam, because you know he goes into the year, as a midweek starter. And, and, you know, if there was one big question mark, it was the closer's role. O'Sullivan eventually moves him into that role, and he's just really excelled there. He's 3-4, and four, has a school record, 16 saves, and a 1.55 ERA. And, you know, he's worked 63 in two-third innings. So, you know, he's, he's got some extensive work, like you said, as a closer. He's not a one-inning guy. Uh, you know, they're really counting on him and now. You know, that's a that's a big concern for this team as they uh, continue on through this uh, March in the postseason. Because, obviously, with the starting rotation, doing it up front and then burn at the end, I mean, you you got to have some guy step up middle relief. But it may be a case where, you know, you, you are, you're right. We're going to look at Michael Byrne in a different way here down the stretch. Maybe 
more for an inning or two. Maybe he does have to get some three inning saves or, you know, that's, a, that's just what we're going to have to expect here because that's where the skater baseball team is. And it's certainly uh, up to this point, I guess he's delivered the goods, so to speak. So we'll see how, if he can continue to do that against the Wake Forest team that comes in here, in here leading the nation home runs. So for Wake Forest, in addition to having that power that you talked about, they also got here unblemished, Scott. I mean, they're riding a nice wave into Gainesville and one that should give Florida a lot of pause. Yeah, this is a Wake Forest team that, you know, they did sweep through the regional, played three games, uh, won them all, uh, and did it with the way they usually win, with a lot of power. Uh, they come into Gainesville leading the nation with 100 home runs. So, you know, that's the first thing that obviously catches your attention. This team has power. Uh, I was reading where they're the first team, you know, Adams since the, the NCAA kind of changed the bat back in 2011. Right, right. This is the first team to actually reach 100 home runs since then. Hmm. You know, back in the day, I mean, 100 home runs in college baseball for a team was no big deal when they were playing 15 to 14 games. But this is a team that relies on its power. And this is a big deal for the program. This, uh, you know, Wake Forest has not been to the super regional round since 1999. So what's that? My math right. It's 18 years. Yeah. So you can imagine there's some uh, excitement up there in uh, Winston-Salem around the program. And now they come down to the super regional here in Gainesville, best two out of three. And, you know, just first glance, you look at it, it's going to be Florida's pitching against their hitting uh, classic baseball matchup there. So uh, definitely going to be a challenge for the Gators, especially that starting rotation, you know, with, Alex Fado, Brady Singer, Jackson Kovar, those guys I'm sure will be stressed to keep the ball down in the zone, which they're usually pretty good at, and stay away from those dangerous spots for the Wake Forest hitters. So pitching versus power hitting, that's the storyline this weekend in Super Regionals. It was also the storyline for softball in the World Series Finals against Oklahoma, and we already talked to Chris about that earlier. But uh, I want to talk about a different part of this, Scott, which caught your attention, which is the interest level in softball nationwide as evidenced by some really impressive TV ratings. Yeah, you know, Adam, ESPN sent out a, a release Tuesday morning about the Game 1, the 17-inning classic, you know, obviously – one by Oklahoma, seven to five. You're talking about 17 innings. That's what, two and a half normal softball games, five hours. That's a lot of exposure for this sport on a primetime sure. ESPN. And the ratings showed it. More than 1.68 million people tuned in. And you know the sport's growing. I mean, I tweeted something before game two, just watching the intro. It was just like the production that ESPN did on the intro. I was like, what? I mean, you just felt. This had a big event all over it. And the TV ratings once again backed it up. And it just shows that I think it's popular. I mean, you've been around the sport a lot more than I have, really, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a Gators play-by-play guy. But, you know, it's action-packed. The visually appealing, the field is obviously smaller and tighter than baseball. There's a lot of – you can catch the angles uh, maybe tighter. Yeah. The players, they're usually smiling, having fun, a little more loose than maybe uh, mm-hmm. a lot of other sports that we, we know – they just seem like they're always having fun. I think that resonates with fans, don't you? Yeah, no question. I mean, it's, it's very visually appealing. It's like you said, this is something people maybe wouldn't think about, but it fits very well into a TV, if that makes yeah. sense. Because of the size of the field, you can see everything that's happening, and it's almost to scale in, in a way. Yeah, I think that's a great point from a technical aspect. And here's what really caught my attention, Adam. You know, that rating was more than some SEC football games last year. Wow. For instance, the Tennessee... South Carolina SEC Network football game 
that softball game outdrew that. And it's not just one game. It's more than like 200 college football <laughs> games were outdrawn by the game one of the uh, Women's College World Series the other night. So the TV uh, folks probably loving that. It's, it's great inventory for them. It comes at a time when really the sports season, other than Major League Baseball and the, the NBA Finals, haven't been that great this year. Mm-hmm. The NHL Finals have been, but they're not on obviously wide exposure like ESPN's given uh, women's softball right now. So a uh, pretty win-win situation for the sport. Obviously disappointing for the Gators, but again, uh, this is a program that's built to kind of get back there. Kelly Barnhill's back next year, so it could easily uh, – be a repeat for next year for the Gators back to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. So softball came up a little bit short in their bid to win another national championship. Maybe a Gator team that's most in line to win a championship outside of softball, track and field. They seem to consistently be competing for national titles every year under Mike Holloway, and they are in Oregon as we speak trying to bring home another trophy. Yeah, you know, especially the men. I mean, this is a program they've won six national titles since 2010, as you said, or you mentioned about Mike Holloway having this program running at really peak condition. And this year's, I don't think it's going to be any different. They're going to be certainly in the bid to win a national title out there in Eugene. And, you know, one guy that a lot of people are going to get exposed to on a different level this week is freshman Grant Holloway. Uh, you got to remember, Grant Holloway was a big-time football recruit, and uh, a lot of programs wanted him. He decided to come to Florida and run track, and he hasn't disappointed. Set some school records along the way in the uh, sprints, winning an SEC title. Uh, so he's someone you're going to look at. Obviously, jumper Keandre Bates, he kind of fits that profile that this program has done in recent years, starting really back with Christian Taylor, then Will Clay, mm-hmm. Marquis Dindy. I mean, these guys, they've won national championships on this stage in college. They go on to win gold medals on the Olympic stage. And now Keandre Bates is another guy looking like along those lines. He's another uh, Florida athlete that you're really going to want to keep an eye on out there in Eugene. And uh, again, I mentioned uh, Grant Holloway. I, I think this guy, <laughs> he's only a freshman, Adam. Wow. And you could make a case right now. He may be the athlete on the University of Florida campus right now who has the most potential in his sport. I mean, I mm-hmm. think this guy has superstar status written all over him. And what that means to me is winning some events like this while he's in college and also going on to, obviously, the bigger stage Olympics down the road. So uh, he's a name that Gator fans certainly want to pay attention to and uh, really a chance for them to maybe get their first glance of him on national TV, uh, you know, at the uh, outdoor finals. And every part of that championship has been covered on the ESPN family of networks. So make sure to go to FloridaGators.com for updates. And if you want to watch live, you can get the info there as well. Uh, one sport that is still on the back burner but seems to be coming up more and more here as we approach the summer, Gator football. And specifically, Jim McElwain and some of his coaches uh, utilizing some of their resources at the next level to try and get better. Yeah, you know, uh, remember back in uh, what, March, uh, Pro Day, there was one NFL head coach here, and he happens to be the one who has the most recent Super Bowl ring, Bill Belichick. And Thanks for rubbing that in to a, uh, to a lifelong <laughs> Falcons fan. <laughs> well, I know it's going to take you a little while to get over that, Adam. But uh, <laughs> by the way, going off topic here, I love the whole embrace the suck. I mean, 
I got to give Dan Quinn some credit. I think that's classic to lighten the mood of having to overcome that because I still think they're going to be a really good team. But going back to uh, Bill Belichick and Jim McElwain, yeah, they visited the Patriots practice this week up in the New England. And, uh, you know, when Belichick was down here in Gainesville for U.S. Pro Day, he invited McElwain and some of his guys up. And, you know, it's the second time in recent weeks that McElwain has stopped by an NFL uh, summer camp. He, he was out in Dallas to promote the uh, Gators-Michigan season opener a couple of weeks ago. And he, he went by and visited with Jason Garrett and, and caught up with the Cowboys and got to take a look at their operation. Uh, you know, these coaches do this all the time. Some college coaches visit NFL guys. Uh, NFL guys come down to visit college guys mm-hmm. and just get different ideas, share thoughts. Uh, you know, maybe he picks up something up there because uh, if you're going to try to snag a secret or a new way of uh, maybe trying something out, can't think of any better organization right now than the Patriots. Returning to something we talked about last week, the Tim Tebow All-Star campaign, uh, it seemed that it was running like a well-oiled machine. It was going to happen, and we were going to see it on SportsCenter. And, Scott, it, it got derailed. The Tebow All-Star train is no longer pulling into the station, I understand. Yeah, well, there was a little, you know, my prediction last week that I was for sure. I, I kind of thought, well, this thing was just fan battling, but, you know, it, it wasn't. In the end, basically, there was a, a fan battling element, but I, it's not very much part of the way that, all-star team is chosen in the South Atlantic League. It's really chosen by the managers, the front office executives. There's a, a media voting element. So the fans, you know, it's not like in Major League Baseball where the Tim Tebow would be starting in the South Atlantic League All-Star game sure. if it was just up to fan balloting. But ultimately, you know, it, it's chosen really by the, the league. And uh, so he's not on the All-Star team for the South uh, there's about six of his teammates are his manager there in Columbia is actually managing the team, but, and it's in his home park, but he's not there. So there's talk that he is going to participate in the celebrity softball game, which is on Monday before the the all-star game, which is actually on Tuesday, June 20th. So, you know, I can imagine Tebow drawing a few people out there for that celebrity softball game for charity. And, uh, you know, it seems right up his alley, but, Again, I'd like to see him actually play in the game. Uh, there's no doubt, as we said earlier, he would be there if it was just fan balloting, but that's not the way that all-star game works. So, you know, Tim Tebow strikes out one of the few times in his life, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to have to go back and, and check the audio from last week, but I think that you were willing to bet your entire estate that Tebow would make the all-star team. So it seems like everybody who listened to last week's show is entitled to a piece of it. Where should fans go to get their piece of the Scott Carter estate? It's a secret that you got to find on the internet. Um, <laughs> can't, give it, can't give it away here. I, I don't know. There was a little asterisk that I guess I should have added because I, I went all in on the T-Bow. You did. You pushed all, all your chips on the table. And I, I kind of have to say it was portrayed a little differently <laughs> in the media it almost made it sound like, uh, you know, it was up to just fans. And I knew that there was a can't miss element there. Uh, but you got sometimes you got to read the fine line. That's true. And this is another reminder, Adam, for our listeners and for you and Chris Harry, all of us. Don't believe everything you read on the Internet. I know sometimes <laughs> it's hard, but sometimes you that fine line that, you know, like those commercials that pop up and they're selling you something. Then the guy comes on at the end. He talks like 60 miles per hour. Yeah. That was, that that's was the part you like, should listen to. 
Yeah, that's a good, that's the one where you really have to lock in and make sure you understand what's going on. Yeah, so don't believe everything you read on the Internet, but do believe everything Scott Carter puts on FloridaGators.com, especially <laughs> this weekend. He will have full coverage of baseball in Super Regionals, and we will talk about it next week. Scott, thank you so much. All right, thanks, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow baseball as they make their bid for Omaha, beginning on Saturday at 3 on ESPN and continuing through the weekend. Then come back here next Thursday as we break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at the map.